Welcome to the Wisdom for Business and Life podcast. This is your host, Levy Brackman. The Wisdom for Business and Life podcast is produced by Invone. Invone is the marketplace for real estate equity, where everyone can invest in real estate by going to invone.com. Today, I want to talk about values and the importance of having values in one's life and how one can lose one's values if one is not careful and strategies that one can put in place to ensure that one doesn't lose one's values. Let's first define for our purposes what a value means. So a value is something that you have in your life that you think is incredibly valuable and important to you. So for example, some people value having children. Some people value religion in their lives. Some people place a huge amount of value on having a very large home. Some people value luxury goods in their lives. Some people value giving charity. These are all values that people have in their lives. And values are really important because they will dictate how you make decisions about things. So if you value having luxury goods over, for example, having money in your bank, you will go out there and choose to spend on buying luxury goods at the expense of having money in your bank because you'll have to take money out of your bank and spend it on those luxury goods. So many things in life are competing values. So for example, a person might have the values of having luxury goods and value of having money in their bank, but the value of having luxury goods might be just a little bit more important to them or more valuable to them than having money in their bank. And therefore, when they have competing values, should I keep the money in my bank or should I buy something expensive? they end up buying something expensive because that value is slightly more important to them. So not just having values is going to dictate how one makes decisions in lives, but also how valuable one value is to you over other values. So many decisions in life are really based on competing values that one has. And if one value is more important than another value, one will make a decision accordingly. Now, there are certain things that we might know are really valuable to us and we philosophically understand it, logically it makes sense, but we don't act in that way because our emotions get in the, in the way of things and they make us want certain things. So let's go back to that example that we just gave of people who might have a value to have luxury goods in their life over having money in the bank. Now, does that really make sense? Perhaps, perhaps not. Maybe, you know, it's better to have money in the bank, especially if that money in the bank is garnering interest, so it grows each month, uh, versus buying a depreciating asset. That depreciating asset, you buy an expensive car, the second you drive it off the lot, it goes down in value. Um, at least that's the way it's been up until recently, uh, where it seems like uh, value of cars have gone up inexplicably because of, um, of, of inflation. But other than that, you know, um, uh, you buy a depreciating asset, 
that doesn't actually make sense necessarily. And people might not even have that as their value. They might say saving money or growing their money is more important than losing their money, but they really want that thing and emotionally they are pulled in that direction and therefore they make that decision. So that really means is that your your heart and your head are somewhat disconnected and you follow your heart over your head. And that is uh, very often what happens when it comes to values. One might intellectually have one value, but emotionally one has another value and the emotions will sometimes win over. Now, this is all fine and dandy with regards to things which are relatively trivial. But then when it comes to things which are really, really important in one's life, that could actually make a really big difference to the trajectory of one's life and could hurt one, one needs to make sure that the values which are going to lead to success take precedent in one's decision-making over the value which could hurt one. So back to the example of buying luxury goods. Now, if one's doing that, you know, just here and there and one can afford it, maybe not a big deal. If you have situations where, as mentioned, the competing values have greater impact long-term, then one really needs to be careful. So let's give an example of this. One might have a value in life to enjoy life and have fun. And then one might also have a value in life that one wants stability. Now, these often can be competing values. If you want stability in life, that means that you're going to wake up each day and do things that bring stability, whereas having fun means that you you might not be as focused. You might not be as disciplined. You're looking to just kind of let it all go and and, and, and enjoy life. Uh, these can have an impact on one's personal and intimate relationships. If you're looking for stability, you're going to behave one way. You're going to find someone to settle down with and get married If you're just going to look to have fun, uh, you may never do that. And you might hurt a lot of people along the way. And if you're married and you have settled down and you still haven't changed your values or your competing values of stability versus fun are out of whack, then one could really do real damage to one's relationships. So what happens in life is that one can know that one's value for stability is very important. And intellectually, that makes sense. But one kind of forgets that. It's no longer top of mind. And therefore, one can end up in a situation where one does things which can harm that. Think about in a business. There was uh, recently uh, a story of a very well-known startup which had to close down. And when you look at what happened there, well, they spent a lot of money on frivolous things. The CEO got really excited about the fact that, you know, VCs had invested over $100 million in his startup, and he thought that money could just be used, and he threw big parties, and he, you know, he was having a lot of fun. And yeah, well, he wasn't focused on building the company. It turned out that he only had, in that year, spent $120 million of venture capital money, all burned it all the way down to zero, and only made $600,000 worth of revenue. Well, his values were out of whack. He obviously was enjoying the fun of having all the money, but wasn't putting in the hard work to create the stability of a business. While if you ask this founder about his values, he would tell you that his highest value is to create a stable business. But when you look at his actions, he wasn't behaving in that way. 
So what I want to talk about today is really how to make sure that values that one has which are deeply held, one is able to keep those top of mind. So when it comes to that decision point, what do I do that the value which is really deeply held and is going to lead to long-term success is chosen over the value which one is drawn to emotionally? What does one do to achieve that? Well, this weekend, we're going to start celebrating the holiday of Passover, uh, as the Jewish community does each year. And Passover is commemorating the story of the emancipation of the slaves from ancient Egypt. The Israelites lived in Egypt and were enslaved to the Pharaoh. And there was, according to the Bible, a series of events that took place miracles that were performed by Moses and the 10 plagues, which culminated in the plague of the death of the firstborn, in which the firstborn of the Egyptians were killed in a plague and the Israelites were spared. And they believed at the time, according to the Bible, that God had actually passed over the homes of the Israelites and spared them from dying from this plague. And it was called the plague of the firstborn. And therefore it was called Passover. That holiday got that name called Passover and God passed over the homes of the Israelites and only uh, the firstborns of the Egyptians were made to suffer and die from the plague. Pharaoh got very worried about this because he was a firstborn. He thought that he would also be smitten by this plague and therefore he allowed the Israelites to leave as free people and that was the emancipation of the slaves and these Israelites became free people and the story continues on from there. But the key thing that we're celebrating here uh, on Passover is that thousands of years ago the Israelites, our ancestors, were slaves to the Pharaoh in Egypt, and the Almighty God took us out into freedom, and we have been free people ever since. That's what we're celebrating. Now, the way we celebrate it, though, is really important. And because what it does is it reinforces the value of freedom. So it becomes a really important value in Jewish psyche to be free, to never be enslaved ever again. We were many, many millennia ago, enslaved to the Pharaoh in Egypt. And that was a terrible experience. We never, ever wanted to happen again. And therefore, we must cherish this value of freedom. The problem is, people don't just become slaves. Something happens that causes them to become slaves. And in many ways, the slaves themselves are participants in allowing that to occur, that they become slaves. They didn't put up a fight to stop themselves becoming slaves. They Slavery crept up on them, crept up on them, and eventually they find themselves in a situation where they are slaves. So how do you ensure that you never go back to a situation once you are emancipated that you are a slave again? So what's really interesting is in as part of this festival of Passover, there is this ritual, a ritual meal that 
almost all Jews celebrate called the Passover Seder. The Passover Seder is more than just a meal. Some people call it the Passover meal, but it's much more than just a meal. There's actually a book called the Haggadah, which is read by people at this Seder. And there is, a Seder actually means an order. And why is it an order? Because there's an order to the proceedings of the evening. It starts off with making Kiddush, which is sanctifying the day over a cup of wine. And then there are a bunch of rituals that take place, including reading of this book, the eating of unleavened bread, the eating of bitter herbs, and the drinking of wine, until one reaches the meal. And the meal is supposed to be a lavish meal, but the meal doesn't come until quite a bit later in the proceedings. So this is kind of a really interesting kind of ritual, which happens, by the way, in the home. A lot of rituals in a lot of religions happen in the place of worship, in the church, or in the temple. Whereas this particular ritual happens in the home. It's done with one's family, and it is led not by a rabbi or by a spiritual leader, but the head of the household, usually the oldest male. And the story is discussed, but the rituals take place. And these rituals really reflect a journey, a journey from slavery to freedom. You go through reading about how the Israelites were enslaved to the Pharaoh in Egypt and how the Pharaoh made their lives miserable, how difficult it was, their hard labor that they had to perform as slaves to the Pharaoh in Egypt, how they were taskmasters who would whip them to ensure that they were actually carrying out the work. And then after that, you, 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 you actually eat bitter herbs. Why do you eat bitter herbs? You eat bitter herbs to remind you of how bitter it was. That life as a slave was bitter. You dip some vegetables in salt water. Why salt water? The salt water is to remind you of the tears of the Israelites. How it was so painful. It was so distressing to them, a life of a slave, that they would cry regularly about how difficult their life was. And then you also eat the matzah bread. What is matzah bread? It's called lechem oni. It is the bread of affliction. It's not supposed to be tasty, good bread. It's bread which is of the poor person. It's bread that is unleavened. It hasn't, hasn't risen. It's very distressing <laughs> to eat a lot of that bread. I can tell you from first-hand experience, some people love it. They think it's crackers, but you eat a lot of it. It does kind of really weird things to your digestive system. It is truly the bread of affliction. So you go through this experience where you're eating the bitter herbs. You're talking about the misery that the Israelites had as slaves in Egypt. You're drinking, you're eating the vegetable, which is dipped in salt water to remind you of the tears. You're eating this unleavened bread, which is supposed to be the bread of affliction. You're literally experiencing what it meant to be a slave. And then at some point in the celebration of the evening, of the proceedings of the evening, it kind of switches. And you sit down and you have a lavish meal. And at that lavish meal, you're supposed to have all your best utensils out. If you have any uh, silverware, you put all this best silverware out and you're supposed to lean as a free person does as you eat. 
in the olden days, people, when they ate, they would recline. And because that's how the wealthy would, 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 would eat in those days, they would sit back and they would relax and recline. And the meal would go on for a long time. The best foods in the best dishes. And you're really enjoying and experiencing what it meant to be a free person. This experience, which is carried out once a year at least, is taking you from an experiential perspective from slavery into freedom. You experience what it means to be a slave. You Not only do you read about it, but you, you actually take part in rituals that make you actually feel what it meant to be a slave. You eat the bitter herbs. You eat the vegetable dipped into salt water to remind you of the tears. You eat the bread of affliction. It all is part of this experience to make you not only just mentally understand the concept of slavery and how painful it is, but also to experience in a real way what slavery is. And then after you've had that experience, you then contrast it with the lavish meal that you eat, reclining with all your best silverware, your best utensils, your most delicious foods, and you sit back and you enjoy that sense of freedom. The contrast of the two is supposed to be stark. And you're supposed to internalize this concept that here you are experiencing on the one hand the slavery and then experience the freedom. It's really interesting that one of the things that people really complain about in the Seder is that they are really hungry. <laughs> you know, they start off this meal and people who haven't been to a Seder before really find this challenging that they sit and they eat a little bit of food, that little bit of vegetable which is dipped into salt water. They have some wine and they also have a little bit of this bread of affliction which isn't that tasty because it's bread of affliction. And that goes on perhaps for an hour, sometimes a couple of hours until they actually get to the food. And, you know, a Seder starts at probably, you know, 7 o'clock in the evening. You're not eating until... 9, 10 o'clock at night, and people are really hungry by then. And actually, one's not supposed to eat before the Seder. You're not supposed to come to the Seder when you're full. You're supposed to actually even start off at 7 o'clock where you're hungry. So you haven't eaten dinner, and now it's 10 o'clock before you actually sit down for the meal. Most people, you know, it's about bedtime, and they're eating the meal. So they feel the hunger, but that is by design. You're supposed to feel the hunger. Slaves feel hunger. Slaves can't just eat whenever they want to. They actually experience hunger. It's part of the design to actually feel and experience what it means to be a slave. Slaves are hungry. Slaves eat bread of affliction. Slaves have a bitter life. It's painful. Experience that. It's only after you experience the pain of slavery that you can actually appreciate the freedom, the meal that you eat. There is tremendous wisdom in this that I wanted to share with the audience here today. That you can't just take your freedom for granted. If you have never experienced slavery, you're not going to understand and appreciate deeply enough the value of freedom. Because you've never experienced the opposite. 
It's only after you've experienced the opposite of it, appreciate what true freedom is. You know, my wife works in the hospital as a nurse, and the unit that she works in has many patients who suffered from COVID, and a lot of the people were intubated, and now they're trying to recover. And she had one particular patient who shared with her that this whole experience with COVID really changed their life significantly. They realized how fragile life really is and how they should really make the most of it with their family and friends and with their loved ones and how working so hard the whole time really wasn't the values they really cared about. What they really cared about was spending time with each other and community and Therefore, they were going to make changes in their lives and so they could actually spend more time with each other. It took them nearly dying for them to appreciate the value that each other had in their lives. This is a big deal because it tells you that you can truly, you, you live life and you take things for granted. You say, yes, I value family. I value friends. I value community. But how are you actually living your life? When you actually have to make that decision each day, whether you are going to partake in family or you're going to partake in other things and other activities, you've got competing values. Which one do you choose? And if you don't experience the loss of family, one can take family for granted. It's only after experiencing the potential loss of family that one says, you know, I have to make changes in my life to ensure that the priority of family is there. That value which I have, I know mentally I need and I want, is actually lived out. We only know the true value of something when we've experienced not having it. Now, truly one doesn't want to not experience freedom in order to be able to value freedom, which is why no one is suggesting that the Israelites should go back into slavery. But... If you don't have a yearly reminder of what slavery is like, it is entirely possible that you could end up forgetting the value of freedom and therefore inadvertently slipping back into slavery. It is only through having a ritual each year to remind you of how terrible slavery is and then contrasting that with freedom that you're able to maintain the value of freedom so that you never ever lose it. And you never choose slavery over freedom ever again. No one consciously would do that. Subconsciously, though, it can happen. And in order to ensure that that doesn't happen, one needs to have a reminder each year of what an experiential reminder of what the pain of slavery and lack of freedom really is and how freedom compared to that is so important and so enjoyable and so valuable. The same is true for a lot of other values that we have in our life that we intellectually know are really important, but emotionally we may not follow or we might forget, we might not live in accordance with. So how does one ensure that these values remain there? So we can take a leaf out of the book of the Haggadah and of the Seder and try and implement that into our own lives. A word of caution here and a lesson from what the Seder does, that is one doesn't actually have to reenact the entire thing. 
An example of this is there is a very well-known and popular Netflix show called Ultimatum. The premise of this show is that these are couples who are in a relationship and one member of a couple has given the other member an ultimatum and said, you either decide to marry me or we're going to end the relationship and I'm going to move on. And they come to this experience and the first thing that happens is is that they become single. It's as if they're no longer in a couple. And they date members of the other, other couples on the show. And after a week of that dating those people, they make a choice to spend three weeks in a trial marriage with the other members of the couples. So they end up spending three weeks in a trial marriage where they live in the same house with another person who is not the person they came onto the show with. And then after those three weeks, they then split up and they go back with their original couple. And at the end, they make a decision whether they're going to actually get married or not get married. So the person who the ultimatum was given to now makes a decision. Do they want to stay with the person they came into the experience with? Do they want to maybe get together with the person who they met in the experience? Or do they want to just walk away entirely? And so that's the premise of the show. Now, what's really interesting here is that what the show is really trying to do is give the couples an experience of what it means to maybe lose the other person. And then if you have that experience, what it means to actually lose the other person, you will value them a lot more. And it turns out that this actually is what occurs often in the show, is the mere concept and idea that the person might lose the person they gave an ultimatum to or the person who the ultimatum was given to, that make is enough for them to decide that actually they don't want that to happen because being alone or being without that person is too distressing. It's a life that they can't even uh, see for themselves or consider and therefore they make the ch choice to to actually get married because they they now see the value that they have in being a couple. The thing is that, you know, you also uh, having that experience of spending three weeks in a trial marriage with somebody else, which I contend you don't actually have to do that to awaken the value of marriage and awaken the value of the relationship that you have. You can just have a reenactment in a sense, in a way in which isn't doing the entire thing. Just like we're not going back to becoming slaves in order to appreciate freedom. Rather, one has a ritual which reminds one in a experiential manner of what the pain of slavery is. One doesn't have to become a slave for that. One can actually do other things that cause that experience, like eating bitter herbs and, 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 and the salt water, etc., etc. And I would argue that the same thing is um, in an intimate relationship. I mean, it wouldn't make very good TV, but it has the same value. You don't actually have to have a trial marriage with other people to gain that value of what marriage with your particular partner is all about. You could do other things to experience it. You can go on a date or you could spend time where you're apart and then come back together again. There are other things that you can do. I'm not a relationship counselor, so I'm not getting into that here necessarily in this show. But you don't actually have to go and experience the exact opposite to reinforce the value of the thing that you care about most. You can do other things 
that gain some kind of level of experience of what the opposite would be like without actually doing the opposite so as to gain that value. So this is uh, what I wanted to talk about today and to, to share, that life is really all about competing values. And we know intellectually the values that we want to be most important in our life. There are times, however, that one can forget about those values. And then one's decisions are dictated as such because decisions in life are based on competing values. And if you're making a decision about something which is not based on your highest value, you know you can end up uh, failing in a big way and it doesn't lead to success. In order to reinforce your most important values, it's important to every so often, it is important to engineer an experience that makes one appreciate one's most important values. And I say engineer because one actually creates that experience of the opposite of those values in order to be able to appreciate the value itself. One example of this in business is you may have worked really hard in order to be able to gain some kind of financial freedom. Perhaps you start your own business and that business gives you personal freedom and gives you also financial freedom. Over time, one might lose appreciation for that. And therefore, one might stop working hard on one's business or one might start to neglect certain elements of it. And one could lose that. So every so often, it is important to recreate the experience of what it means to not have that financial freedom. Perhaps one should go and spend time a day or two uh, walking around to Walmart or, 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 or Home Depot or one of these places and see what does it mean for people who work in retail every day having to show up and clock in and clock out. Have that experience as if you're there, as if you're working there. And then think back about your own life and appreciate the fact that you have financial freedom. The opposite can also happen. You can decide that you want financial freedom and see that value. And how do you do that? By looking at people who have it and contrasting it with your experience. That might truly inspire you to get there. This has been Levy Brackman with the Wisdom for Business and Life podcast produced by Inbone. Thank you so much for joining me. Until next time.